Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Mark Bomford, and I'm the director of the Yale Sustainable Food Project. Joining us today in the studio is Frederick Kaufman. Frederick is a food journalist, author of the recent book Bet the Farm, and a professor of English at City University of New York, and also a Yale alumni. Welcome, Frederick. Hi, Mark. Frederick, I wanted to start this conversation by going way, way back. Way, way back, in fact. At the Yale Farm, our students have a chance to look at these Babylonian tablets from this collection that Yale holds of these old cuneiform tablets. They're looking at recipes for flatbreads. But a lot of the tablets in this collection are actually for grain, and they're not invoices or receipts. They're actually agreements to buy grain at some point in the future. They're agreements to buy grain before it is grown and before it's harvested. What, what are these things? <laughs> well, I think that is a great place to start, Mark, because as long as there has been civilization, there have been cities. Cities define civilization. And, of course, when you have pe- lots of people living in cities, they're not actually making food. So you have this dependency as we have today, the same problematics exist between the rural and the urban and that communication and how that works and how the, all those systems of distribution. Those, that was kind of one of, the, one of the first problems that civilization had to solve in order to, to be civilization. And there is an even bigger problem here. And the, the problem is that food and harvest is an inherently uh, unstable element. It really only comes out of the ground once or twice a year, and yet human beings need it every day, right? And so you have, how, how do you stabilize the price of an inherently unstable thing? How do, you, how do you stabilize the supply on every level up and down the line? And one of the very first mechanisms was this idea of the quote-unquote forward contract. In other words, if everybody comes to market at the same time, with all of their rice or all of their grain, what is going to happen to the price? It's going to plummet. And this happens again and again and again. It happened in in the Osaka rice market for the Japanese. Throughout history, it's always happened that when all these guys come to market, all the farmers come to market, the price plummets, and those farmers go broke. They go to the wall every year. Well, everybody understands that food is too important not to stabilize, not to regulate. And so civilization depends on forces of regulation for food price. And these tablets are first attempts to regulate going forward what the price will be. Okay, so it sounds like civilization is based as much on forward contracts as it is on grain itself. Well, it's, it, it's, it's, it's based on food, and of course food is based on the price of food. So if these were such mutually beneficial to the farmer and to the eater in the city, the eater who got stable prices and the farmer who got stable prices and the net result being stable food supply throughout the year, why when you go a bit further forward in history, why when you get to the activism, say, of the Grange and the populist farm movements in the 1880s, 1890s, was there such hostility uh, towards the use of futures trading and in particular the role of the speculator? When did these people come into the picture? That is, that is a, great, that is a great, great question. It kind of goes to the heart of modern efforts to stabilize and regulate the price of grain. Because there was, as we all know, there was an economic meltdown, there's a stock market crash, there's a a real estate 
uh, collapse. And this was called the Panic of 1857, Mark, the Panic of 1857. And after this panic, a lot of the founders of big agriculture in this country, like the, the, the founders of Pils Mr. Pillsbury and Mr. Archer, Mr. Daniels and Mr. Midland, they got together and they actually created this system of, of what we call grain futures. It's kind of a, a more advanced version of these future contracts, these promises to buy and sell grain to stabilize price that we saw since Babylonian times. This was a, a much larger uh, market-focused way of stabilizing the price of grain. And they put these markets together after the Civil War, and all of a sudden we saw uh, grain futures markets to help stabilize the price of grain and, and really regulated by the founders of big ag who needed a stable price in order to do uh, their business. So one of the things we have to we have to recognize here is that a, it's founded by big business. B, it worked well as long as it was exceedingly regulated, right? And that almost as soon as it begins, you have people trying to piggyback on it and make as much money as possible without having anything to do with grain. So you say it works well if it's well regulated. What kind of regulations were in place at that point at the origin of these futures markets? So from the outset, the whole point is risk management and price discovery. Those maybe sound a little bit like business school terms, but the whole point is that we do not want the too much volatility in the price of food. We don't want it all of a sudden jumping way up. We don't want it going all the way down to the bottom of a valley for various reasons. So we want to stabilize that price and we want to discover what that true price is. Uh, and that's what these, these markets are for. They were regulated in terms of the kind of grain, the amount of grain that was in one contract, let's say. Uh, the, and, and the most important form of regulation was when these contracts were due. Now, this gets to be a little bit complicated and abstruse. But in the days of, Babel, of Babylonia, in the days of Babylon, right, really up until the days of the 19th century, Europe and America, if you were a farmer and I am a baker, we make our own agreements, our own forward contracts. So you can manage your risk. I can manage mine. You can bet on a price going forward. I can bet on a price going forward. And in the past, these markets were like huge medieval bazaars with all of these contracts being traded and retraded and back and forth. I'll, I'll promise you at this price, at this date, this much. So these guys, the founders of Big Ag, came in and regulated it. We're only going to trade this much wheat, this much is a contract, and all of the contracts will be due on five distinct dates in the year. Those five dates still exist, if you can believe it, those five, those five contract dates. And so all of a sudden, this market that was, that was wild and out of control with people on the secondary and tertiary buying and selling, and ultimately nobody knew who owed who, what, you know, what when, it became regulated, and it started to work. I, I think that answers uh, that question, I hope. Or maybe it just raises more questions. Well, in your book, Bet the Farm, you do go into a good history of these uh, futures contracts, their origins, and uh, how they arrived at the state they are today. But I found it really useful when you did a little bit of a 
field guide for the uh, non-economists or the non-MBA students out there. And there's a few key terms that you define nicely in the book that I think are important to the understanding of this. And if you like, it's kind of a, uh, a bestiary of the, some of the people who are involved in these markets. So first, there's the hedger. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about who the hedger is in these markets and why some might be bona fide and why some might not be. Um, the hedger in these markets is the person who actually has a stake in grain. So the farmer is a, is a bona fide hedger. The baker is a bona fide hedger. The person who's going to warehouse that grain is a bona fide hedger. And they have particular interests in that market and in the stabilization of the market and the price discovery of that market because it is their livelihood. Those are the most important market participants are the hedgers. Those are the ones who are buying and selling to each other all of the time. Okay. And then you've also got uh, the speculator. Right. Who has a slightly different livelihood. Right. So from the beginning, as soon as a market like this is set up, a futures market, and, and if I could just step back for one second, because this is a very important term going forward in terms of what we're going to discuss. These grain futures, in other words, we're betting on the future price of grain in order to try to stabilize price and manage our risks. These are the first financial derivatives. So the first, you know, we've heard these financial derivatives become very famous in the crisis of 2008. The very first financial derivative derived its value from food. That's why all, these, all this derivative legislation is still coming out of the Agriculture Committee in Congress. The speculator is the person who has no stake in grain. He's not a farmer. He's not a warehouser. He's not a baker. But he's trying to make his money every day on the fluctuating price of those futures contracts because they move up, they move down by the hour on these markets. And so he is trying to make money as the market goes up, as the market goes down. And it is said that when the hedger and the speculator, when these two market participants are in the proper proportion, that that's when the market works best because the speculator, as they say, adds liquidity to the market. The speculator's money allows the hedger to buy or to sell as often as he or she wishes because there's always speculative money in there to either sell or buy. So liquidity, and you'd also mentioned price discovery, especially if you've got these five set dates through the year. Right. What's the role of the speculator there in actually helping the hedgers understand the price direction and price discovery? Well, it's, it's almost a, a, a a magical way these futures markets work when they work correctly, which is that as each of these five contract dates approach, right, numerous factors converge. All of the hedgers who said they were going to buy sell their position. All the hedgers who said they were going to sell buy their positions. All the speculators also get out of their positions. In other words, everybody takes an opposite position right at the very end so that they actually end up owing each other nothing. It's this, it's this almost magical moment. And as that happens, the price of, of a bushel of grain starts con of, of this imaginary grain people are buying and selling the future price of actually converges very slowly on the price of a real bushel of grain that somebody might sell uh, at a... Uh, at a grain elevator, that is called the spot price. And so the future price and the spot price 
converge on these five dates and all of a sudden you have this magical process of price discovery. We know what a, price, what a bushel of grain is, is worth. You have a fleeting return to reality, it seems. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't last too long. You talked about the positions that these hedgers and these speculators can take. So one more definition question for you, and then I want to get into how things changed fundamentally not so long ago. Um, what does it mean for someone to take a long position in one of these futures markets? People take long positions, they take short positions, right? Long simply means I am promising to buy. I'm promising to buy grain at a certain date in the future. And a short position simply means I am promising to sell. That's all it means. And people do this for various complex reasons. Often, if I am a farmer and I am going to promise and I am going to actually be selling grain, I'm going to be selling grain to you, what I might do very cleverly is since I'm going to be selling my grain on the quote-unquote spot market, I might actually take a long position on the futures market and quote-unquote buy imaginary grain. That's what hedging is. You take, you take sometimes equal and opposite positions so that no matter which way the price goes, you're going to hedge out some money for yourself. You're going to manage your risk. And that's how these markets work beautifully. So when you talk about the market working beautifully, it seems like we've had this history of increasing sophistication, but it's always been with this underlying goal of stabilization, managing risk, and hopefully having a secure and predictable food supply for everyone living in cities and everyone farming and everyone baking, et cetera, et cetera. And in the meantime, everybody madly trying to subvert these markets for their own gain. <laughs> and so something happened, um, and you dive in in the 2008 food crisis when it seems that we've got record harvests around the world. And yet with these record harvests around the world, we also have the food riots, we have the price spikes, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the short question, what went wrong with these markets that were intended to stabilize? And then we'll get into some of the nitty gritty. Uh, what went wrong? Well, in short, the bankers took over. They subverted the market. The market that worked symmetrically became asymmetric. More speculators, the speculators started to outnumber the hedgers by four and five to one. The promises to buy completely outnumbered the promises to sell. There was this demand shock on the market, and the price was pushed up and up and up. And there are many factors. There are many factors that went into this, enabling factors. There are technological factors in the sense that there were techno technological indices created by Goldman Sachs and followed by many others that were created in order to allow this kind of position to be taken by the banks. There, is, there were political decisions that had been made by the Commodities Futures and Trading Commission, which is the commission that actually supposedly regulates futures markets, allowing bankers to take as large a position as possible as they liked in these markets. This is a whole, this is a huge discussion and an ongoing discussion. FDR, in his Agriculture Act of 1936, in this constant struggle to keep bankers and speculators in check, not out, but in check, had made what are called position limits. So that if you are not a bona fide hedger in food, you actually have to limit your participation in these markets. In the late 1990s, fairly secretly, a number of very large American banking institutions were allowed position limit 
exemptions. So they, the argument was, well, look, we're trading, we're bona fide hedgers in international currencies. We're trading money. Well, it isn't, you know, in the Midwest, they call corn cash. Isn't grain the same thing just as money in international currencies? We should be allowed an exemption, and they were, and the door was open, and it is yet to be shut, even though the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform Act specifically said position limits must be reinstated. The Derivatives Association sued, and that door is still wide open. There are no position limits. So that's the number two factor. The number three factor was actually an academic Factor, some of which came from SOM right here at Yale, where a number of professors actually proved, maybe we should put it in quote marks, that uh, an investment in commodities was going to be a quote-unquote hedge against inflation, that when the stock market went down, commodities would go up, and in fact, it would be a wise uh, tactic in so-called asset allocation to get as much money as possible, not as much, but to get a fair bit, a, a, a fair proportion of your assets into commodities. Then 2008 hit. We had, once again, we had this meltdown. We had this crisis. Where do we put our money? We can't put it in the stock market. We can't put it in real estate. We're even afraid of currencies. Currencies themselves we're afraid of. Therefore, there's this huge rush to commodities. All the conditions were set. There is the asset allocation. There is the technological index. There were the, there were the position limits that were open. And the sales forces of these banks went out and they gathered, I think in one six-month period, you had a $13 billion market that was transformed into more than $300 billion. It was toppled. It was subverted. It was changed forever. And that is what happened in 2008. And just as an example, and people are still saying, oh, there was no speculation in food. Well, look at the price of gold. Would anybody argue, you know, the price of gold has doubled and doubled and doubled, that there's no speculation in gold? Well, of course there's speculation in gold. And one thing that's funny about this whole food bubble is that if you actually measure the price of food in dollars, oh my God, it's gone way, 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 way up. You measure the price of food in gold, it's the same price. <laughs> Frederick, we're going to come back to some of these questions in our third segment. But before we move into our second segment, which is actually going to take an interlude into uh, this idea that you uh, can't manage what you can't measure, um, I wanted to just quickly ask you, for those of the listeners who don't make it to the third podcast, what your recommendations that you're pushing are right now? Because I understand that some NGOs and some people within academia as well, some universities and some research institutes, have uh, banded behind some of these recommendations and are supporting them wholeheartedly. What are these recommendations? Well, I think the first and most important policy recommendation are the position limits, to reinstate position limits so that bankers cannot take as large a stake as they like in the world's food supply and bet on hunger. That, that, is, that is, I think, the most important. The other is that there are no laws on the books banning insider trading in commodities, if you can believe that. So I believe that the commodity markets need to be regulated via insider trading, just like the, uh, the equity markets are regulated. We also need more transparency in this quote-unquote dark market, something we haven't discussed, which are the quote-unquote over-the-counter swaps, ways in which people sneak into the commodities markets by making private deals with huge bona fide hedgers like Bungie, like Cargill, like Archer Daniels Midland. We need to throw some light 
and transparency on who is taking what position when. And finally, I think we need to bring back a national strategic grain reserve. Nobody argues that this country doesn't need a national strategic petroleum reserve, but for food we don't have one. It's absurd. This, again, was, re was instated uh, by FDR and uh, actually ultimately was uh, dismantled under the Clinton administration. It was a farmer-owned grain reserve. And a grain reserve is something that China, for instance, has had in place since the year three they have had a grain reserve. <laughs> That's how important they think it is. I think we need one. Have you heard about the province of Quebec's strategic maple syrup reserve? You know, I have not, but Mark, you tell me about that, but that's fascinating. <laughs> it's, I'm, I'm a Canadian, so we know these kind of things. It just goes to show when something is that important that uh, you need to keep a reserve of this on hand because you don't want to have volatility in something as vital to life as, as maple grain syrup. or as maple syrup. <laughs> um, Frederick, we're going to uh, wrap up this one. This is Frederick Kaufman, author of Bet the Farm. I'm Mark Bomford, the director of the Yale Sustainable Food Project, and our next podcast segment will be looking at some measurements of sustainability. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit our website at www.yale.edu slash sustainable food.